0: Welcome to The Journey of an Esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. I'm Yes. Welcome to uh, the podcast, Journey of an Esthete. Oh, thank
1: you for calling.
0: Well, this is our show and you're on it. And um, I sort of feel like... Uh, do you mind if I say a little brief introduction before we start our conversation? Or? Absolutely. Are we are we on the air right now? Or Absolutely. Are we being recorded. Absolutely. Okay. It. Let's let's get um, started. I think my interest in you chiefly comes from one book, and that's Hollywood Incoherent, which I think is a terrific book, and actually, quite frankly, is one of the best, if not better, books I've read on '70s movies. Um, Thank you. Uh And, you know, it's inspired me. And, of course, that was back in 2011. Uh Um, But subsequently, you've written a really terrific sort of guide to Hollywood storytelling um, Mm -hmm. called Hollywood Aesthetic, which is also a very good book, Pleasure in American Cinema. Uh And you've written these books, and you're a film theorist and critic, and you teach at University of North Carolina. And uh, your work has inspired me. And, of course, I, you know, on this podcast, I talk a lot about 70s movies and I am a cinephile, and so it seems it seems most appropriate to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it. Um, I'm wondering uh, where you wanted to start because uh, we could usually start from a biography of how you came to write about these kinds of movies in the way that you do, and your kind of your journey with the movies you grew up with and the movies you love and or didn't love, and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about that if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So I began writing Hollywood Incoherence when I was in graduate school in California, and I realized this is in the late 90s and I uh, or mid-90s, and I, I realized that so many of the movies that I loved the most were coming from the same period, and this is like an eight-year period mm-hmm. from 1970 to 1977, essentially, and I would continually return to these movies. Many but by the way, it came out before I was even old enough to see them. So part of it was maybe nostalgia, but part of it was, you know, sort of nostalgia, nostalgia, which is, mm-hmm. you know, these were movies, uh, some of which were, you know, came out when I was you know quite young, um, you know, in the first grade or something. You know, I couldn't possibly have seen them then, but I kept returning to them. These are movies by Robert Altman and Martin Scorsese and Elaine May mm-hmm. and movies by um, – uh, awesome. Eventually, John Cassavetes and yeah.
0: and uh, William Friedkin Ashby. and others. Don't forget Hal Ashby. <laughs> what's that? Don't forget how you know? Ashby, Ashby and Michael. Oh, and Mitchell. Hal Ashby of and Michael. Morris, yeah,
1: and many others. Yeah, um, Milos Forman, Martin Ritt. Yeah, um, and so and and these films seemed to me, so memorable and mm-hmm. unusual um, for Hollywood. They they seem to have one foot in Hollywood cinema that offered them a structure, a format, uh, a way of storytelling, but then another foot was someplace else, and I didn't know where that was. Yeah. And I wanted to figure out what was going on, meaning what was going on in the film industry at the time that would allow these unusual films to be made and then, and then they just sort of stopped, right? By the end of the 70s, they just sort
0: of stopped and you would get a few films here and there that would be working in that same vein but maybe mostly I, from I, Hollywood they I, were. Hold that thought because I, an idea occurs to me. Yeah. There, there, I believe there are a few movies that I call 70s movies that came out in 1881 that have a 70s yeah. spirit like Used Cars comes to mind by Bob Zemeckis which seems very 70s yeah. to me. You know, Breaking Away Comes to Mind from 79. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, uh, uh, Cutter's Way. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, those are just the titles that come to mind. So I don't think that the, the spirit stops necessarily, but go ahead, I didn't mean to interrupt. it. Yeah,
1: like I mean, right. So there's movies like that. And then there are the movies by the same filmmakers who got their start in the 70s, like Martin Scorsese comes out with Raging Bull and mm-hmm. The King of Comedy yep. and Last Temptation of Christ in the 80s. And these movies are, you know, they feel like 70s movies in that same tradition We you nice. talk about what that tradition is. Mm-hmm. Um but but I wanted to know, you know, why there are so many of them that are grouped around this, you know, essentially eight-year period. Um, what was going on in the industry and what defined those movies? What, was, what were the formal properties that I and so many other people were responding to that said, you know, that was something special, that was unusual? Mm-hmm. And so that really is what set me on that investigative path um, was to just to try to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And and you know, my conclusions are in that, in, the, in Hollywood Incoherent, which you which you referenced. Um, and so that that was my initial sort of impetus for writing that book. The second book, Hollywood, did you want to hear about? Did you want me to go there? Or you want to stick with seventies?
0: Well, I, I, if it were up to me, we would talk. I don't know how much time you have. Probably uh, not as much time as I like. We would be talk about seventies movies all night can't do that don't okay. all my <laughs> but to be fair to you as a scholar I actually do find the writing on some of the more recent films and some of the classical Hollywood films in uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood aesthetic at equally interesting and I and I really like w- what you have to say about some of these westerns and about you know um, so I think that. so if you want to go there but I mean I wanted to hold off a little bit on that until um, maybe a little bit later if that's okay with you. Okay. But um, yeah. Let's do that. I think I, I don't I want to be I want to emphasize that you know you're an all around film scholar theoretician you have a lot of ideas about all sorts of things not just the 70s but but um but you go go ahead Let's talk talk more um well yeah so did you want to stick with the 70s still for it, or should we move on or do oh, you want to deeper little, i want to stick with 70s a little longer because i want to think about like yeah. the movie the last detail just mm-hmm. comes to mind and what it does with actors in a space just the kind of uh just remarkable things it does and just i mean you know shampoo you know i mean i'm just thinking um and you talk about a little bit about this in your book it's kind mm-hmm. of um for you, it's about a new way of of, of narrating film, right? Narrative, narratology, almost, um, right? Yeah. So, so I think what, yeah, I think what
1: was happening in the seventies, or you know, it's, it wasn't exactly a new way in the in the way that you know, say, Godard is telling a, stories in a new way, right. um, or um, James Joyce was telling stories in a new way. It was basically building on certain traditions, but emphasizing you know, detour, emphasizing turns away from that, that very linear storytelling path that Hollywood had perfected during the studio era Mm -hmm. and exploring moral ambiguities, conceptual ambiguities, storytelling ambiguities, as well as just exploring the idea that there would be gaps in a story, that there would be things that don't make sense, that there would be scenes that don't build on the the you know the,
0: the cause and effect structure, right? The question and answer answer well, quality of traditional or classical, mm-hmm. classical and what comes to mind. And you of course you mentioned The Exorcist. I mean, there's so much time spent in Freakin's film with the lives of these priests that have absolutely nothing to do with the horror plot. You know, Jason Miller getting drunk with his friend mm-hmm. and there's this. Is that part of what you're talking about, these kind of digressions away? Yeah, it is. So, the Exorcist is a really good example because The Exorcist is like an art film. Totally. Here
1: you have this yeah. – essentially it's an exploitation film, right? Big-budget exploitation, which Hollywood had really embraced in the 70s. That's right. With films like Jaws and Towering Inferno and yeah. others. And But here you've got, you know, big-budget exploitation film and – it's got all sorts of gaps in it. You know, scene transitions are even odd. You move from one thing to another, you don't even know how you got there. You don't know the temporal relations between scenes. Is this the next day? Is this at the same time? Is this, you know, a week later? Um, And then spatial relations are also sort of strangely incoherent in that movie at times. And then there's... Off-screen action, and you hear about it, and you're like, "Well, where was that scene?" That's right. and so it's only you know, it's, it's an unusual, it's a big-budget film, and yet here it's exploring all
0: these oblique storytelling techniques. And that, and you're saying that this was a endemic to all all '70s, most '70s films. Um, well, you, no, I wouldn't, no, say you wouldn't say that. So, if you if you actually just counted movies, most of
1: them are very traditional mm-hmm. from that period, but what happens in the 70s is that there's this other type of movie that becomes very popular. You know, this more oblique storytelling yeah. that I'm discussing that becomes very popular and is appearing in really big budget movies like The Godfather Part Two and The French Connection and The Exorcist and movies like that. Right. Um, and also that you just, um, you know, that it's, that it's appearing in big budget movies and also there's just so many of them from that period and so many of the movies we remember from that period like Chinatown And shampoo and cabaret
0: and Mm. others—they are exploring these these oblique techniques. It's interesting if I think about one of my favorite directors, Michael Ritchie. You Mm. know, his movies in the seventies, like *Semi-Tough* and *Prime Cut* and *Smile*, are highly unusual movies. And lo and behold, when he starts making movies in the eighties, he seems to move away from that, like *Fletch* and and *The Golden Child*. There is a a change there, and I I can't help but think is part of that. Yeah, that's true part of that Yeah, and he
1: made one of my favorite movies from the 70s, which is The Bad News Bears. Yep. 1976 film, love that film. That is really unusual. First of all, it's not kids that are, you know, and he's drinking, he's yelling at the kids, mm-hmm. and he met the main character, who's played by Walter Matthau never really got, really redeems himself. It's a, it's a, it's a strangely, you know, dark film for a, for what we think of as a kids film.
0: It is. And it has an opening that's more like the long goodbye. Elliot Gould It's a non opening of the main character. Instead of in his bed, he's looking for cat food. He's in a car and it stays. Right. Such oh, like time. the long goodbye. Yes, right. It's that, interesting. It right? And I guess the yeah. presenta- representation of heroes or anti-heroes is important in this too, right?
1: Yeah. Well, also, he made the candidate in, um, I think it's 72. Yeah. And that movie is also unusual because it's got, you know, Robert Redford, who's, a, you know, a leading man, gorgeous, he plays the senator. But, you know, you, you, as the movie goes on, you start to, you know, question whether this wholesome. Guy is really in it for the right reasons, and then it has one of the most interesting and ambiguous endings, uh, which is also a characteristic '70s yeah.
0: gesture, which is to to end on a scene of of irresolution. Yeah, well, you know, Melvin Douglas, you're in politics now, <laughs> son. You're a politician, right? With that with that yeah. laugh, that, that Melvin Douglas laugh, and those those uh, those heralders in the room, and it's just um, it's amazing. And a lot of a lot of filmmakers like Michael Ritchie you know, did their best work in the 70s. They sort of felt that they,
1: you know, that, that was the time they could really explore yeah. cinema.
0: And, you, and you've been thinking about this a long time. Now, when you uh, uh, stay on the subject, because I find it interesting, your um, mm. chapter on Cassavetes is actually one of my favorite things written on Cassavetes, which is saying a lot for me, mm. because I actually study with Ray Carney, of all people, Mm-hmm. Right. And moreover, helped Ray Carney. Um, I helped Ray Carney on *Killing of a Chinese Bookie*. I made a shot list of every every shot of both oh, how or, about of both versions of that film for him, which taught me actually a lot about that film. And you know, it's a it's a whole other. If you want to, we can go go there. And, but um, you know, I feel that your your one essay on Cassavetes is is is, is as good and, and is is interesting. And I was very uh, because you talk about real life and. and um, conventions and dialogue or how people speak to one another. We'll talk, talk about that because an audience might be interested in this question of writing and screenwriting and point of view.
1: Well, Cassavetes, I mean, I can talk endlessly about Cassavetes. I mean, I've taught whole courses on Cassavetes. That's- he's so much fun to talk about. He's so interesting and he's doing something completely original. You just don't see anybody doing that kind of work. And very few filmmakers are working you know in his tradition some um, but Casavetes had a, had a really unusual approach to writing and directing so he was a writer director independent he did make some studio films but most of his work and the work that he loved the most of his of, of, of his was was always independent because mm-hmm. he, he was an, he called himself a, a professional actor and, a, and an amateur director and, mm-hmm. and by amateur he he meant it in the in really the the most original sense, which is he did it out of love, mm-hmm. and so he would write scripts, and he you know, and the actors were you know, if you look at his scripts, they're they're very close to the movies, even though the movies look like they're improvised, they're not. And the, the actors same. are staying the lines that they've been given, mm-hmm. um, but he archly refused to tell the actors what to do. So actors would come to him and say, "You know, I don't know what you meant by this line. I don't know why I'm saying it." Yeah. And he would say, "Well, you know, if you don't know, you know." I mean, he just wouldn't tell them. I mean, mm-hmm. Peter Falk was so frustrated did, with him on husband, on husbands, uh, yeah. because he he you know, mm-hmm. Caspitis just would not direct him at least wouldn't direct him in the way that Peter Falk thought a director should mm-hmm. and then he saw what was on screen afterwards and he realized oh I see what he was doing and basically Casanetti's approach to writing and directing was look I'm going to write the script I'm going to write the words you're going to say the words um, but you have to figure out why you're saying them oh, interesting. and just because I wrote it doesn't mean I know what it means and he would assume that the actors would bring more to the performance Mm -hmm. if he didn't tell them anything about what his uh, intentions were. And so Cassavetti's films are filled with, you know, contradictions and nuances and complexities that Mm -hmm. you don't find in other cinema because here you have all, you know, you have the writer who's the director, but then you have the actors who are doing something totally Totally on their own. That's right. And are trying to figure things out, and they're going to bring much more that one person couldn't bring. So you get... So many voices in Casavetti's movies that um, you know they just they feel to people like they're chaos, and yet mm-hmm. they're so dense and interesting narratively and characterologically and otherwise. Well, there there, is
0: a, there is a logic to them, but it's a getting it's getting to that logic. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. they, they they at the end of the day, there is you know you can figure out things in them, but they're not readily apparent. You know, on on one viewing, path or they not.
1: Yeah, because I mean the thing when I show Casbetis in class my students say, Well nothing happened and I <laughs> and I always feel that's weird because I feel like so much is happening at every instant right, well, that I can't keep yeah. up. Well, that's... That, the, we're talking about really, the same thing.
0: Yeah, because the nothing happens is, is like too much happening, right? It's like everything happens. It's the, everything, it's everything right, is it's the same.
1: Time. One thing Ray Carney says in one of his one of his books on Casvetti, he says something like, you know, Cassavetes scenes go from climax to climax. And I think that's really true. There's just like every 10 seconds there's a climax. Now, you're used to in Hollywood movies that there might be one climax. There would be One climax per scene, defining a climax A as something where something changes, where a person changes, or a strategy changes, or a direction changes, or somebody makes a decision to do, instead of doing this, they're going to do that. Mm. And, you know, so, or some revelation, right? Mm. Luke discovers his father's darn failure. Oh my God, this is crazy, right? And they, you get one of those a scene. In Casablanca, they're happening every four or five seconds.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: In, so you're yeah, yeah. just like, wait, uh, what? What? Yeah, exactly. And it's just it's so exciting if you're into that kind of thing. If you're into that sort of density mm-hmm. of storytelling, Casablanca's movies are so thrilling because you can keep going back
0: yeah. and you see a different story every time. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's interesting. I'm glad that you're you're showing that in your in your, in your classes. I, I um. I often wonder how students respond to some of the films you show, like all that jazz, or I don't know what you've shown, or Jaws. I mean, clearly yeah, I haven't shown, I'm actually, I haven't shown all that jazz. I'm teaching a course on semi
1: cinema next semester, which is the first time I've done it in, I don't know, seven or eight years. You know, I, I, I haven't taught it in a long time. Yeah. And my thought was, you know, show some of the outliers, because 70s films are, you know, they're, they're, that period is so full of outliers. Can you think of any of that I should show?
0: Um, well, you mean America or Europe?
1: Hollywood films. No, that could 90s. be Hollywood
0: films. Yeah, Hollywood, not, not, right. not right. indie. Uh how about how about fingers or how about um I don't know not interesting fingers? or how about lipstick lipstick but, but yeah that, that's don't, an odd that, one. the kids are like, like they don't get yeah. out now. or um I don't know I'm just thinking actually man that fell to man who fell to earth is one of my favorite man who fell to earth
1: Beautiful there family. that's a nice idea yeah yeah cuz there's
0: you know, so many I'm sorry go ahead. Nick Rogue is somebody <laughs> that people don't write enough about I don't think he's kind.
1: Yeah and, and that's interesting. Yeah. Manfred Earth would be interesting. Yeah, I um you know I I I I have uh I
0: think
1: I I I have on my website even. I have a list of movies from the 70s that are great that people have not seen. Um, And I should try to call it up because yeah. there's so many films from that period, they and they just lost. fell away. They
0: fell away. Yeah, like the Chocolate Licorice War, things like that, or you know. Yeah, and or, I'm
1: thinking of uh, Have you seen especially uh, in the early '70s? You know, The Last of Sheila. Yeah, I like I mean, The Last of Sheila. I like yeah, yeah, Last of Sheila is a brilliant movie, and. um, you know, of course, I love Mikey and Nikki. Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite films from the 70s, the Main movie and mm-hmm. um, North
0: Dallas Forty. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, which was Cops big Cops, at the time, and then just sort of disappeared.
0: It's one of the best, still one of the best football movies.
1: Yeah, absolutely
0: I right. I think. Yeah, so yeah, it's interesting, but I'm sure with every every class, kids respond in different ways. I guess depending upon the era, depending upon you know thing thing. You know, I'm sure. I, I sort of feel like back to Cassavetes. Do you think he's had a profound influence influence on streaming television, and indie film? Currently, he clearly has, right, on Lena Dunham and on people who. Yeah, there, not not so much to tell you the truth. He has had an influence. Um, it's
1: it's often indirect, you know. Um, but there's not a lot of people who are working in that tradition. I you know I would count Mike Lee as an example. Very much central. So you know, as a, you know, a sort of descendant of Cassavetes. Um, But there are not many people who are making that kind of movie. I think his film Shadows, you know, had a really strong impact on the independent filmmaking scene of the 50s and 60s. And so there were lots of people who realized from Shadows, oh, you could actually just make a movie you can pick up a camera you know get together a few thousand dollars you can make a movie Mm -hmm. um but you know beyond that there there are not a whole lot of people that i would say are working in that tradition Mm -hmm. you know elaine may martin scorsese um and you know a handful of others are fan we're fans of, of Cassavetes, yep. but, you know, most people, you know, are doing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe Bob, uh, Rafelson, mm-hmm. you know, was working in the 70s, and I think he probably was influenced by Cassavetti's you know, a film like King of Margaret Gardens. It's not exactly mm-hmm. in Cassavetes films, but it does have that, it you know, strangely surprising density. Um, uh, but um, but it's it's not like he was you know I think when you look at histories of cinema yeah. you don't see you know he's not like a Francis Ford Coppola yeah. or a Martin Scorsese where you kind of you see their influence everywhere interesting on American cinema you don't really see it in, you have to trace it with yeah, i I, I
0: I I do see it but I think what you say so I think we're I think we're both right so I think what you're saying it hasn't been this it hasn't created a school or a thing where you can sort of trace it. Yeah, or but style. I do, but I definitely see it in what actors do, especially on streaming television. I see things that mm. I feel like are, would, not, would not be possible were it not for Cassavetes. Um What do so, you think like, of? Well, uh, Lena Dunham's Girls, for example. A mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of um, well, most, I think actually um, a lot of it has to do with the time frame. That 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 the time frames that quality TV uh, are, is working with, you know, mm-hmm. like The Sopranos. I think there's a there's a there's a, there's a um, allowance at that time frame of, of episode episodic television enables directors and actors to do things that I do think come out of, but not not completely, but maybe more indirectly, Casavettes, and I do see traces in that. Mm-hmm. I don't Mm. think people have talked about it much, but I think it is there. I do think it is. Yeah,
1: he doesn't appear much in film history textbooks, you know, for one thing, and that that might be an oversight, or that might be, you know, the sort of the lack of impact. But, but you know, he does have a devoted following. You're one, I'm one, ray right. Yeah. And I know, you know, a lot of them. And there are people who just like me and you, you know, that obsess about him. Yeah. But you don't hear him mentioned by filmmakers that often, except for, you know, Martin Scorsese will, will talk about Cassavetes and, and his influence. They, they also had a relationship. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, Scorsese, you know, looked at Cassavetes as a mentor.
0: Absolutely Cassavetes absolutely because had especially actually, uh well especially the yeah, uh, influence on not only Alice doesn't live here anymore, but um but um, actually a lot of Cassavetti's work I mean a lot of Scorsese's films I see Cassavetti's and decisions, course yeah. choices he makes as a director. Yeah. Direct, direct, direct. Mean streets would be a, a really good example. In yeah. fact, I think you could even attribute oh. Mean Streets to Cassetti'cause
1: Cassavetti's so Scorsese oh, had made yeah, yeah. um uh the Corman well, you know, movie. What's the, that? The
0: domestic scenes in Raging Bull are totally Cassavettian. The domestic scene, yeah, not the boxing right. scenes. Yeah, the, the, to, yeah. yeah to, a very, uh, to a degree, yes. Very much so. Um, yeah. But I, it was
1: Cassavetti that, that encouraged Scorsese to do personal projects like Main Streets. And that was his, after after, after Cassavetti's called Boxcar Birth a piece of shit. He, right. um, he said, Don't do that again.
0: <laughs> I like Scarborough. Um, it's a, it's a good, good film.
1: Yeah, and Scorsese um, said, Okay, so he, he went back, he went and did mainstreams after right. that. That's
0: right. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of feel like uh, there's so much we could talk about. I, I don't want to get too technical or philosophical, but would it be fair mm. to say that you are reacting against the kind of. I think you and I share a philosophic. Um, connection and then I consider myself in part a cognitive neoformalist hmm. are you are you such or would you are you come out of that more of that rather than the rather than the more esoteric um, sort of film theory are you or how would you describe how would you describe your approach because I sort of feel like when you talk about films you actually talk hmm. about what happens in the movie without going for reaching or extraneous stuff that doesn't have much to do with what's actually on screen I appreciate that you should probably talk more about that since. You... Well, the way
1: that I think about it is that I'm interested in film aesthetics, so which is basically a way of saying I'm interested in why why people find movies rewarding or mm-hmm. enjoyable or pleasurable or what have you. So I'm interested in film as a kind of you know a something as a that it interacts with your brain, yeah. and so when you talk about cognitivism and and I have worked you know a lot in in with with. Cognitive self studies, although I don't, I don't really firmly put myself in a, in a cognitiveist camp, although I have written pieces that would be, would be in that tradition. Um, my interest is in, you know, everything I write just about is, is, is about, you know, what about this movie does something to our brain that our brains like to do. So the part of that, that's cognitive is what's going on in the brain. Sure. Right. The part of that that is, is not is what's going on in the movie. So you know, we'll, so I will look at you know maybe narrative properties or stylistic properties or anything sensory that is going to make our brains do something. You can't just mm-hmm. sit down and have Casablanca. You have to watch it and listen mm-hmm. to it.
0: Well, and you know, you, know, I see, you need I
1: that stimulus. Yeah, yeah, Otherwise, your brain isn't going to enjoy it.
0: Your brains are going to know what to do. And you point out some really interesting, like you you say in Hollywood aesthetic, that part of the enormous appeal of Raging Bull is as expressivist boxing scenes and the strangest of them. You're saying that those very qualities are what appealed to an audience and and made it more... Indeed. I really find that interesting. I mean, I find... So I think it's not just a cognitive thing. It's also a formal... The formal properties of the film. I, right. do, I do find a lot of your predecessors, especially in the 70s and 80s, a little off-putting because I feel like they do talk about things that aren't in the movie. If you follow one of them, they make all these these very... I don't know, far out or, or extraneous points that really have nothing to do with Unforgiven or Casablanca or the movie we're talking about.
1: And, yeah, well, I think I think probably what you're responding to are you know these different. There there are different strains in film studies. So there's the cognitive strain, which is, and the neo formalist strains, which are you know more in line with the way that you think about movies, the way that I think about movies. As, as experiences for spectators, mm-hmm. meaning, um, you know, an aesthetic experience is an actual experience. It's an it's an empirical event, mm-hmm. and in order to understand it, you need to understand film form if you're talking about cinema and you also need to understand you know how brain what brains in fact do at least as best as we can understand that yeah um and so psychology is one place to understand the response component of aesthetics the part that i think you're getting frustrated with and i get frustrated with too is when people um don't take into account, you know, how people actually respond, but they theorize how somebody might respond or they theorize a, a meaning in the movie that has nothing to do with how people yeah. conceive of the movie. It, it is merely an interpretation in the yep. sense that it is something they have put on the movie as opposed to something that an audience might discover. Yep. So it, what if you look at the movie this way? Yep. And the other strain is, you know, that is probably dominant in film studies right now is, is cultural studies. So yep. the effort there is not to understand the work as an aesthetic object, but as, a, as an expression of culture. It's like a communication studies right. approach because it's looking at how... Culture is communicating its ideas by usually ideologies or politics or what have you or gender roles or any other sort of cultural construction Mm -hmm. by means of its artifacts. But that part, I think, misses what you and I most appreciate, which is the artistry. Um, You know, works of art are not just artifacts of a culture. They are also works of art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're interested in art – then um, you know that's going to be your primary focus, and it's not as though art is outside of culture. We need to understand an, art, an, an artwork within its cultural history, and within its history at large. But it's but that's background mm-hmm. to understanding how the work of art functions as a work of art. Now, so what we're arguing over here—not you and I, but—but. Right. But, with with others who take another approach is yeah. what's the foreground what's the background yes. we put art in the foreground and the rest of the background whereas some people flip that
0: i guess for them it's more about i guess political activism maybe first i mean foremost maybe rather than the film uh, that could be one difference. yes well it's yeah. certainly among ideological
1: film scholars and ideology is perhaps the most common form of film analysis that's being done right now. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not an aesthetic analysis. It's normally a hermeneutic analysis or an interpretive analysis, but aesthetics is, 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 is not hermeneutics. It's It's a different activity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is different. I mean, I guess you need both. I mean, I guess it all depends on what you're, I don't know. I'm pretty generous. It depends on the kind of class that you're teaching too. If you're teaching a class about, you know, Attitudes of artists towards different groups in society, then politics would be very important, I would think. But that's a, that would be a certain kind of class, I guess, or a specific kind of class. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I want to go back to a Hollywood aesthetic because you do some really beautiful things in it. I was really Thank impressed you. with your your reading of lever to Heaven*. Well, I'm impressed with the number of things, oh, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And I sort of wished the book were longer. I'd like to see more chapters, right? You know, I would like to see what you do with diff- different, more movies, but uh, talk a little bit about when you approach a movie like Lieber to Heaven or um, uh, Touch of Evil, what are you trying to convey in your book or to a class? What, do you, what are you saying? Look at this or... Yeah, anything? it's funny because I'm actually showing Lieber to Heaven
1: in a class on Tuesday. Excellent. So, um yeah, uh, I think, uh, well, first of all, we should explain to your listeners Leave It to Heaven because it's not like Citizen Kane and Casablanca where everybody's heard of the movie if, if they haven't seen it. Um, Leave It to Heaven was a 1940s, uh, Fox film that, uh, was a big success at the time, but was really forgotten afterwards. But it's it's a it's it's interesting today to people like me and and maybe you and others because it it's you sort of can't believe it got made at all. It's <laughs> such a strange object. It's it is. just doesn't behave in the way that you expect a Hollywood movie to behave, and it's you know the main character for this. First of all, this is a 1940s movie. And the main character is this psychopath woman who's a murderer, and yet she's 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 actually you know quite interesting and mm-hmm. kind of lovely at times. Mm-hmm. It feels very modern that way because mm-hmm. it it feels like one of these um, characters you know, from like House of Cards or something where, right. where you know, they're just evil, but but mm-hmm. they're interesting. Um, and your protagonist gets kind of mixed up with her, but she's this the sort of strangest sort of femme fatale you can imagine, mm-hmm. because she doesn't behave like the femme fatales of, of noir films. No, and, and some people would include this movie among the noir, mm-hmm. but... Um, but it's also in Technicolor, which is also strange because That's Technicolor at this time was was a format that was normally reserved for big budget spectacles, action films, costume pictures, musicals, not for dark films about, you know, psychopathic murderers, mm-hmm. um, so you know, this movie has has this real. Str- it's a hard movie to get your head around because no. it, it's it, it's often behaving in a way that seems so strange and um, unpredictable. I'll tell you something that um, uh, the um, the uh, producer of the film, Daryl Zanuck, hmm. said to describe to describe it. I'm reading here. I was just looking this up while I was talking. Um, she talking about the um, the main character. Mm-hmm. He's Zanuck said she deliberately kills her own unborn child, drowns the crippled brother of her husband, mm-hmm. and endeavors to send her own adopted sister to the electric chair. And yet, despite all of this, there are certain things about her that you rather like. Yeah, and that's you know he's getting at the, <laughs> the sort of paradox and, and contradiction oh, yeah. of this movie. But but to answer your question, I you know, what I look for in films are, um, you know, what's odd or interesting very often to see where – what are the edges? I mean the fun thing about teaching Hollywood cinema is that, you know, you have these – you have most films are, are what you would call the normal film. Yeah. But then there are filmmakers who are – and films like Leave it to Heaven that are sort of working on the outside. Uh, not the outside, but working toward the edges. They never yeah. transgress, they never become an art film. Right. You know, Hollywood doesn't make art films, mm. uh, except very rarely. Mm. Um, but but there are well, films they they like Leave it to Heaven I'm, and Touch of Evil that, mm. that are right, you know, they're almost there.
0: They're right on the edge, especially Touch of Evil uh, and, and Leave it to Heaven. I, yeah, you're right. I mean, they're not revet films. <laughs> they're not out. You're not... Or the exactly. Horror. Um, I, I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about Douglas Sirk for some reason. I don't know why it mm-hmm. comes to my mind.
1: Do you teach Sirk? Well, probably because he made technical movies.
0: Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, did you want to say anything uh, more about some major films and uh, that are either in your book or outside of your book, or whether it's Godfather or whether it's... Um, um, Goodfellas which you mentioned or any of the titles that are in this book but by the way when you're choosing a film how do you make a choice of a film say in this book like what made you choose the Asphalt Jungle uh, for example or is it yeah
1: so when so when writing Hollywood Aesthetic which is the book you're talking about um, I wanted to write a book that was at least attempting to be comprehensive. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book that would span, that would say, okay, this is what's normal. This is what's unusual. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try to book and uh, that, that was sort of systematic in its, in its approach. So the approach I take in Hollywood aesthetic is we're going to look at Hollywood films from four in four different areas, Mm -hmm. narrative style, Ideology and genre. And my thought was these four areas will allow me to explore sort of all the aspects of Hollywood cinema that define it Mm -hmm. as a group. And so when I'm picking uh, a a movie to analyze, like The Asshole Jungle, which appears in the ideology section, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm finding movies that I think are going to be illustrative – of whatever it is about that aspect of Hollywood cinema in this case ideology that I think is going to you know um you know explain to readers what defines Hollywood cinema and where are the edges because that's essentially the project of that book is to say okay this is what defines it and here's as far as it can go and here are some examples of as far as it can go mm-hmm. and um beyond this it's not a Hollywood movie anymore. A studio will not fund it because it's not going to appeal to a mass audience. Rivette is not going to appeal to a mass audience. Right. Godard is not going to appeal to a mass audience. The Asphalt Jungle will. Yeah, it will. Because it's still tethered to that Hollywood form. But yeah. it's exploring those edges. So I'm looking for examples both of normal films, like I also discussed Rocky Three. You do, and I
0: actually really appreciated yeah. that because actually you talked about it Again, more intelligently than the way a lot of sort of, I don't know, ideological critics would talk about it. And you actually get to the, the heart of the movie and just, you know, what's going on in that movie, which I, yeah.
1: Yeah, because remember, it takes artists to make Hollywood movies, mm-hmm. even routine Hollywood movies like Rocky Three. Mm-hmm. You cannot, technicians alone cannot do it. You have to hire artists. They may not be great artists. They may not even be good artists, mm-hmm. but they are artists, meaning Absolutely. they are doing something. Their, their skill is in creativity. Amen. You cannot just hire a DP and, a, and, and, and any old person who can write or whatever. You have to have somebody who knows how to be creative. Mm-hmm. So even a movie like Rocky Three, which I don't like, by mm-hmm. the way, I mean, you know, it's, it's disposable. You know, I like it in a way that I might like, uh, you know, anything disposable. Right. Well, it's no, not, case, no case. You know, I'm well, not it's, interested in watching it's, it a bunch of times like *Touch of Evil or *or Asphalt
0: Jungle. Well, it's not even The Karate Kid, which is a better movie or not even... Yeah, it's movie. not even The Karate Kid. Yeah. So I wanted in the book to explore, you know, the normal. So
1: lover, come back, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know... Um, Uh, What else? No Time for Sargent, Tarzan and His Mate. You know, these are normal, the big broadcast. These are normal Hollywood movies. And I wanted the book to sort of define normality. And then I wanted to say, you know, but here are the edges. And I figured that between those two practices, you're going to see what Hollywood is capable of and also
0: what its limitations are. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Well, for you, those limitations functions are basically intent and style. Like if you're if you're a studio, there's certain things you don't want to do because you're trying to communicate to a X amount of people, a lot of people, right? And so that that mm. sort of um That kind of is a question of intent, right? Like, what's your, you know, that's all part of it. That that seems to me pretty, pretty straightforward. Well, the main thing about a Hollywood film, you know, it has to appeal to a mass
1: audience because that's its business model. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be comprehensible by a mass audience, and if it's not, Hollywood's never going to fund it. I mean, they might accidentally fund it. They might, you know, just fund something, and then it turns out that it was not what they thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do it if they think it's not going to have mass appeal. And anything that's unclear or that's shot in a, in a, in a highly unusual form is, is is not going to get funded. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, it's interesting when these outliers appear, when these films that, you, you, you know, I, I, I sometimes think about writing a book like a sort of how in the hell kind of would be the title or something like how did this, Come out of that system, hmm. and you know, like there are movies, like um, Bigger Than Life, and, mm. and which I don't talk about in the book, and That's um, a great uh, you know, James maybe Night in the Man. City, or oh, nice. you know, others that you just like. How did How did this movie get funded uh, by a by a major studio? Mm-hmm.
0: And that do you is that a function of just the business economics of Hollywood that sometimes highly original things just get through they just it happens. That's the mystery. You know, the that's what Andre Bazan called the genius
1: of the system. <laughs> that yeah. you know, despite the fact that, that they make Hollywood movies in a way that is somewhat similar to how car manufacturers make cars. Interesting. In this, you know, assembly line format. That despite all that, mm-hmm. you've got Casablanca, and, you know, yep, the Asphalt yeah. Jungle, and Leave It to Heaven, and Unforgiven, and, mm-hmm. you know, like these, these really great movies, you know, some of the great works of art of the 20th century right. and, and, right. and sometimes in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And yet they came out of a system that would not seem conducive. You know, Orson Welles said the, the, um, um,
0: the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. He's right. And, well, actually, actually and, Stravinsky said yeah. said the same thing. Stravinsky. What did Stravinsky say? Well, Stravinsky said that you have to have um, you have to have a, a strictness of some kind of form. Yeah. In order for me to even yeah. begin even begin composing. So that, it's, yeah. It's a exactly, because the classical form thing. inspires yeah. creativity.
1: And that's you know that's how Dickens wrote novels in a serial mm-hmm. format. It's one of the most restricted formats for writing a novel. You can't write Ulysses that way, yeah. but you can you know you can write Oliver Twist. Sure, right? And Shakespeare oh, yeah. also worked in a highly constrained format: a Renaissance stage. And yet, you, you know, you you can't do, um, you know, Samuel Beckett, but you can yeah. do Hamlet. You can do Hamlet, right?
0: Let, let me ask you a question about teaching. It occurs to me that I'm wondering: Have you? I'm sure you've had students, even though today, I guess students I I I understand are rather sophisticated. They've seen everything, and maybe not. I don't know. You probably you would know better, of course, because you teach. Um, have you ever had a moment where somebody was really um, unfamiliar with something really great? Like, say, a citizen Kane or she wore a yellow, I don't know, um, how green is my valley or something like that, or asphalt jungle, and they'd never seen it before by, by, they never had Turner classic movies and never, and it just blows their mind. Have you had experiences like that where students have, have, have seen something and been knocked out by it? Um,
1: like, oh, every class, every class, yeah, yeah. students. Students have not seen these movies. I do an exercise on the first, and so I teach I teach the intro. Once a year or so, I teach intro to film studies, which well, okay. is the, at our, my university, which is University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, you know, to become a film studies major, you have to do well in this intro class. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of high stakes class for students. Oh, yeah. And on the first day of class, I say, I I put up a slide, but, you know, before I have even lectured, just as they're sitting down, I put up a slide and the slide says, take out a piece of paper and write down the five best movies ever made. Hmm, And then, you know, and then, uh, you know, so I put that aside and then, you know, sometime that day I say, okay, take out your list. Now cross off every movie that's in English and I say, how many people have, have any movies left? And maybe, you know, out of the class, maybe 20% have mm-hmm. any movies left. And I say, okay, now cross out every movie that was made, um, during your lifetime. And my kids, you know, my students are like 20 years old. So, and I say, okay, now, how many movies are left on your list? And there's all, usually just a handful, right? And this is a class might have
0: over a hundred students. And so, the, saying, so these you know, students, these about, students aren't, aren't automatically writing pickpocket or Andre Rubelev, or they're not doing that, right? No, they're not. They love movies,
1: but they only know what they know.
0: Right, right.
1: And, you know, it would be quite a coincidence, wouldn't it, you know, if. If the five best movies ever made were made in my students' lifetime in English, you know that would be weird. Yeah, it would. And so my job there, and I tell them this is my job is to expand that list so that you get exposed to things you, you know, you don't know. One thing last semester, a, a student said, um, you know, I can't really relate to many of the many of the films you've shown in this class and i said that's great that's exactly what i'm going for Mm -hmm. i want to show you movies you cannot relate to because i need to expand your horizons and expand the the things that you can relate to and cinema is a good way to do that
0: what's an example of a film that um would expand a, a kid's mind that you know just any film that comes into your consciousness you know this film Bigger than life Or would it be Fat Well, well I You know Playtime Playtime
1: You know there's a Jacques Tati movie yeah. You know Who knew such a movie Could, could exactly. ever be made Yeah it's amazing uh, You know Probably your, your Your listeners Haven't seen it But it's It's one of the Great works of art oh, Of yeah. the 20th century And it's yeah. a, You know It's Jacques Tati It's,
0: it's a, almost unwatchable It's so Strange It's so Hard to watch Well it is, um, it, is a, it is funny though you don't
1: think it's stuff- funny, yes, and he thought it would be a big success in the US. That's why he, he, he gave it an English title. But it just it went so far. Yeah, and I mean it, you know, I'm I'm not really giving your listeners a sense of what it is because it's such a strange movie. But it's it's perceptually very difficult mm-hmm. just to keep your eyes on it because there's so much going on in every frame. Yeah. But um but that's a movie that, you know, I you know, my students hate it and then there's the handful that love it. Really? Um which is which is what I'm going for. You know, if if most of the students hate it, but some of them love it, I think that was a good pick. Uh you know, I'll show um Sam Brackage's window water baby
0: movie. Oh wow. Some students hate it, some students love it. Now do um, the students that hate that particular movie, is it because they have certain beliefs about what should be shown in a film or not shown is it more of a of, of a prosaic nature or is it the overall? Oh, that's yeah that's actually some of it is exactly that they yeah. they think this is not you know i've had a
1: student i when, when i get comments you know i get student evaluation because it's at the end of the semester <laughs> they remark more on that movie than any other and one student did say this is not art and then another student said show it Every class meeting before class, you know, it, yeah. it's it's a polarizing film, but I think students find it find it disgusting. It depicts a, a, the birth of Stan Brakhage's first child. Right. So, you know, in well, the nineteen fifties, by the, the way, before no men less. did that,
0: you can't get get more interesting than that. But um, yeah, I, it's yeah. certainly interesting. So, but you know, these
1: are films that you know they they blow my students away. I you know I showed getting back to seventies movies. I I showed a few years ago. I showed the Brian De Palma film *Phantom of the Paradise*. Oh wow! Nineteen seventy four, Brian De Palma film, and you know nobody in the class had seen it. And one of my students decided that that was his favorite movie. Did he just become decided, a, become a now poem. this is my favorite movie. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those
0: yeah. 70s outliers that we were talking about. Absolutely. Well, maybe all of, most of De Palma's movies are outliers, even though they, they hear so closely to genre in Hitchcock and conventions, they're still all... Kind of unusual When you say body Yeah well or? he could go He could go either way He could do sisters And then he, But he could do Carrie And he could do You I know the Carrie's a little bit unusual i don't think that's Yeah
1: it is good. a little unusual But it's pretty It's 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 it, I mean in some ways It's set a formula But it's also following a formula mm-hmm. um, It's certainly Not as unusual as, as Sisters Yeah <laughs> sisters Or yeah. family
0: Paradise Paradise Yeah that's something. What do you account for the extraordinary popularity of certain movies, whether it's Titanic or Scarface? Um, I mean, movies that are kind of—I don't know that. That. Um, well, I mean, I guess they're—you know—I'm sure you thought a lot about this. I mean, I think there are some movies that are that are just insanely popular because of the actual qualities of the film. They just move people, and I'm sure that's mm. a—that's a thing. But then there are other films that I mean that may not be the reason. It may be something else. It maybe it's interesting, right? Sort of beloved films. And, and like- well, yeah. I mean, you know, if you can if you could answer that question
1: and I could answer that question, we'd be rich. <laughs> That's right. Um, it it's very hard to predict what's going to be a hugely popular success. But a movie like T- Titanic has kind of all the elements yeah. of of huge success, meaning it's it's a well-made film, which we could talk about what that means, mm-hmm. but it's a well-made film that also is designed to appeal to multiple demographics. Right. So the way that, you know, sort of one of the big differences between Hollywood today and Hollywood, say, of the studio era, or of the 70s even, which is after the studio era, mm-hmm. is, you know, movies today have gotten so expensive and to, to make and to distribute that. You're, you know, most studios are looking for huge blockbuster successes, and the only way to do that is to appeal to multiple audiences. I felt like Asphalt Jungle, say, or Leave It to Heaven—well, Leave It to Heaven is a little bit different—but Asphalt Jungle, you know, it's designed. It's not going to appeal to to huge numbers of people. It's going to appeal right. to people who like that kind of movie. But a movie like Titanic, it's mm. got a love story, it's got a disaster film, it's got a lot of action, it's got big stars, it's got sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's it's got lots of things going for it that are going to have mainstream appeal. And if you're a talented filmmaker, or, or at least a you know a good filmmaker like okay. like um, Cameron is, yeah. you know, then then you're
0: going to be able to pull all that together and make it feel like a coherent whole. And it's and going that, to so that when you know, talk about well made, that's what you mean. You mean you're talking about a certain kind of craft crafts craft-like uh, quality, be able to
1: Yeah, some. craft and creativity. creativity. You know, it's not... You know, Cameron's a, an artist. He's yeah. not a technician. You know, people want to consider people like Cameron, you know, merely technical filmmakers, but they're artists, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not have the um, boldness and novelty of a... Terrence Malick. Uh, ...tati, yeah. but... But they are also artists are. and and you need them to make movies mm-hmm. even you know mainstream movies like Titanic yeah. you know Spielberg's a good example i he's mean he's extremely creative extreme. he's extremely talented yeah. um, but a lot of the film scholars i know you know poo poo him because his movies are mainstream. They're designed well, to, to to appeal to mass audiences.
0: Well, Spielberg, from my point of view, is a very inconsistent filmmaker. Sometimes he makes really, really great films and then let, let, other times movies that aren't so great. So I think it maybe it's just his inconsistency. To me, his inconsistency is... I know, but can you name a filmmaker who doesn't do that? I mean, that's just
1: what an artist right. is. Right. That's true. You know? That's true. It's just, sometimes you knock it out of the park and sometimes yeah. you try to knock it out of the park and it, doesn't get very far. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even try. You know, it's hard. I mean, course, you can say the same thing about Scorsese too. Yeah, He's got recently, some not. brilliant movies or, or, or Woody Allen who's got yeah. some brilliant movies. But you
0: know, well, if you can case, make case of Spiel- a brilliant movie, that's pretty good. Well, <laughs> most people can't. Yeah, but in the case of Spielberg, the good ones are really good. So I think it's the gap. Mm-hmm. I think it's the width. The breadth of the gap is interesting. Like if you think about a movie like um, Close Encounters or E.T., Mm. um their or jaws, I mean, they really sort of stand out, they kind of they, they just seem they seem different than the other than the other ones, hmm. different other ones. yeah, maybe so, I mean, or you wedding. know
1: you're gonna have some stinkers, you know, Robert Altman mm. made a lot of stinkers too, and but, but he all like that
0: show do you think a wedding is a stinker a wedding oh god i don't seen a, a show wedding. in your seventies, yes,' yeah. a wedding, yeah, I um
1: I think I like that movie if I Is remember right? right. I didn't like it enough to go back and see it again, but I think I liked it. When it's, I one did.
0: My, it's one of my favorite Alvin movies alongside Is it really? Yeah. So, yeah, alongside Long Goodbye and, and uh, Yeah. Uh, and
1: you know, and I mean even more recently he made he, he had made Gosford Park, which yeah. was one of his most brilliant movies.
0: Huh.
1: Um but he also made Popeye and yeah. you know, it's it's you know, sometimes you instance. do it.
0: Yeah, so you like Gosford Park a lot, don't you? And you like um, I do. And you like Unforgiven a lot. Um,
1: Yeah, I remember watching Gosford Park, and I was halfway through it, and I was watching it with my mother, and we were in the theater, and I and in in Westwood, I think, in L.A., and I said to her, I I, we were the movie was not done, we were halfway through, and I said, I want to see this movie again. Yeah. I, I just I was enjoying it so much yeah. that I knew it would it would it would reward mm-hmm. multiple viewings. Yep.
0: Ballman's an interesting filmmaker, isn't he? I mean what he his uh his level of social satire, but also his compassion. I mean one of the things about him is how he blends the two. It's quite unusual. It's quite unusual that he does that. That's one of the things. Yeah. 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 And um and he he
1: he would refuse to repeat himself. I mean, you could find his tendencies in him. You know, things that he does like mm-hmm. the multiple track recording and improvisation and um, mumbled mm-hmm. dialogue and things like that. But he he you know after he made Mash, which made him a huge you know name director, studios just kept financing his project because they thought maybe he'll make mash again and he would
0: not do it he 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 just insisted on experimenting boy did he ever and i think Cause after that he does uh the um bud court right the um yeah the MASH, um the uh, right the the flying kid yeah What's his which is one of i want to say you, *Birdman*, but it's yeah not you know, Birdman. it's actually yeah it's one of allman's weirdest movies that's it's a strange movie. Brewster McCloud, Brewster McCloud. Brewster McCloud, right? Yeah.
1: Not Birdman.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but then he comes, you know, and then he comes out with Long Goodbye, which mm-hmm. is which is just lovely and Nashville, mm-hmm. which is also lovely and and um um Three Women there, oh, there's wow. another outlier. Yeah. So he's he's you know, he's he's trying on um, Bergman you know, said, well what if I what if I do this um, and yeah so he, he's he's really lovely because you know a lot of the a lot of the most interesting filmmakers were experimenters
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, they just they just wanted to keep trying something new
0: that, that, I, I'm impressed that you show Stan Brackage in your class I did not know Hear, hear me just reading from these books I would think you were just teaching you know good fellows and teaching things teach like Hollywood that. that's fantastic. yeah
1: well I teach Hollywood cinema I you know I'm teaching a course right now in the studio era right um, but I teach other things too so I, I my, my scholarship is almost all about Hollywood cinema mm-hmm. although I do write on some general issues of narrative and style and and continuity editing and other things but um, but in my classes I try to go broader than that, mm-hmm. um, to expose my students and myself to other, you know, other film traditions and the American tradition.
0: Where do you, when you look, uh, uh, outside of the class to what's happening in Hollywood studios today, or, or what's just happening in film over the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and what do you see and what's your, what's your, I know that's a big question because there's a lot going on. I mean, are there, are there trends in, in film language or style or, or, or Audio or sound or acting that you find noteworthy, that are unusual or different, or or is it is it uh, what do you what do you make of what's going on? In- well, I guess the first thing I would say, and I don't think I'm a,
1: I'm certainly not alone in saying this, but uh, Hollywood is not doing very good work today. Mm. This is not a really good period for all of it, and when I say this period, I'm talking about basically in the 21st century. Right. It has not been a period of fertility for Hollywood in the way that it was, say, in the 1940s Absolutely. or the 1970s 40s. or the 1990s. The yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's but 90s. these days, you know, Hollywood has, is now wedded to a business model that is not really conducive, and it's partly what we've discussed about, which is the model is, um, you know, appealed to the most number of people. mm as opposed to appeal to niche audiences. When movies were comparatively inexpensive to make, you mm-hmm. could appeal to a niche audience, but, but filmmakers who want to work in Hollywood, at least, can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to work either outside of Hollywood, which means independent filmmaking, which is also in a very bad way right now, or mm-hmm. television, which is in a very good yeah. way right now. Um, that's interesting but you know the interesting films are coming out of other countries yeah. uh, you know there's good cinema going on now it's just not coming out of Hollywood Yeah, um, and there's good TV coming out of Hollywood or at yeah. least out of the mainstream television industry um, although I'm find, you know I'm finding that television is is, you know, that the, the golden age, as we've called it, of TV, which is, you know, basically the last 20 years or so, you can see it starting to to fade because shows are getting very... The TV series are getting very bloated, I think. Yeah. You know, they're, they're sh- things that should have been and would have been four episodes are now 10 episodes, and, and yeah. so they're, they're getting kind of tired.
0: Yeah, there's, there's some of that. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. It, it's interesting... Um, I think the energy in a culture goes into different mediums, right? So I think yeah. you could be in an era in which poetry is king, possibly. Right. I mean, it's And that would a, have been Renaissance, renaissance England. Rena- rena- renaissance, or you could be in an era – I just pulled that out of a hat. I mean, an, er- an era – you could be in an era in which moving images are the thing or, or music. Or maybe right. maybe you could be in an era in which many mediums are, are, are flourishing. I don't know. But it, it seems to me that only natural that these things change with time and right, I sort of it seems like to
1: Yeah and it's it's not all just natural too it's also um designed that way so i think a lot of good um artists are going to television um you know moving image artists mm-hmm. so i'm talking exactly. about writers in right. particular but also directors and others but mostly writers because they know they have more control in television yeah, than they, they do could, in movies the so they can actually run the show if yeah. you're the writer and you you can have some assurance that the writing is going to make it to the screen, whereas in TV, you really don't have. I'm sorry, in movies, you don't have you know that, that kind of assurance.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that's it. I think that's why stre- streaming television has been so, um, so noteworthy, you know. I mean, it's even even a little show like Glow, uh, which mm-hmm. I really like that has 70s influences all over it. I don't know if you've seen, Glow,
1: does it? But, yeah. yeah, is outward. that the one about the wrestlers?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I there, and yeah I highly recommend it I mean there's just there's a lot of or Julia Child Mel, Mel Mayeron's new new show is very good about Julia Child and there's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of stuff there but I, I just sort of feel like yeah that's kind of where the energy went what, to this, yeah, the creative
1: energy you mean. Yeah, yeah, I this. hear you. I think, I think you're right. I think, I think a lot of the talent has gone in that direction because you can do more interesting things, more unusual things, things mm-hmm. that TV really can't, uh, that movies really can't do. The other thing about TV that is, um, special, you know, when compared to movies is, you know, movies you've got two hours approximately and, you know, how well can you get to know your characters? But when you have TV shows like Better Call Saul, you know, mm. there are they're, they're multiple seasons. Yeah, they are. Yeah. The writers start to explore character in a way, or at least they can, in a way that is really quite interesting because, interesting because they know the audience knows these characters very well. So if the character does something out of character, say, the audience will say, huh, I wonder what's going on, as opposed to, Oh, I guess that's who this person is, or oh, they must have made you know this is this character doesn't make sense. It it becomes you start to trust that the character has a whole, and so when they do something out of character or unusual, or they say something in a weird way, you you notice it. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of subtlety you can get away with with television because the audience knows the character so well.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one advantage built into the form, is what you're saying, right? It's kind of it's mm-hmm. kind of a possibility built into the. The, yeah. You know. The
1: advantage of movies, of course, is you can get in and get out. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. something kind of lovely about that, the cleanness of that. Yeah, you can that's... get in and get out. And, you know, so I still <laughs> tend toward movies, even though I, I think today television's, you know, at least Mainstream television is doing much more interesting things. I still, you know, my my heart goes back to movies because I love the way in which it's, you know, it's it's not ongoing. Of course, movies now are are, are, are sometimes borrowing that episodic format that mm-hmm. TV popularized, but that's still not most movies. That's still um, just you know uh, the the series films that 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 are so popular.
0: Do you do you mind naming a couple movie titles that are Again, I'm sure this is asked of you by many people um, that are kind of unknown or not celebrated or reviled that Allah Ishtar you think should be reconsidered and, 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 and liked that aren't or, or what any tales that come to mind? In, 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 well, in, yeah, you know, sort of um, forgotten. Well, movie? Not, just, not only forgotten, but also reviled. We're like, well, you near know, the critics were clearly wrong. This movie's a great movie. And, oh, and unfairly well, malignant. you
1: know, there's one I talked about in Hollywood Incoherent. I, I'm sorry, in Hollywood Aesthetic. Starship Troopers. Troopers. Starship Troopers. Which I, yeah. I mean, Starship yeah. Troopers is one of the most brilliant science fiction movies I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's, it's, it was blasted when it came out. There's been a, a kind of effort to rejuvenate, mm. you know, its reputation among some, some commentators, but for the most part, it's, um, it's you know it, it it's it's still considered a you know a, a, like a fascist movie and a and a, mm-hmm. and a straightforward sci fi film but it's brilliant and it's it's strange and it, it it does things that I've never seen a movie do any movie.
0: well your your reading of it is is very is is unusual but you do stick to what's in the movie and you make you do make a case for it. I mean, I, I feel. Yeah, like, I don't think it's unusual, but maybe that's me. Um, well, you know, what I mean. What I mean yeah. is, uh, well, not. Well, you're saying the film is unusual for one thing, but also, yeah, you know, it's unusual from my point of view, and it's is the way I've looked mm. at it. But, but, so I, I, I've re- I've reconsidered that movie now, having read read that, mm. and I, I sort of feel like you the start the movie that emerges from your pages is very much. A very sophisticated social satire, political satire. Um, yeah, on the is one not hand. How
1: people... <laughs> right. And I mean, the thing I love about that movie and the thing that made me want to write about it is it, it, it does not have a coherent center. Ah, uh, um, I see. You know, it, it is a social satire on the one hand. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a war film and an anti-war film. And and uh, how do you get away with that? I mean, the only other movie I can think of that you can say that about is Patton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, another 70s movie. That's right. That's um, but But, you know, try to write a war movie that's an anti-war movie. Both. And not mm. not a fake war movie, but a real war movie, you know, like a movie that is celebrating war, mm. but that is also satirizing the celebration of war. You know, so mm. it's, it's it's got a lot – and that's just one of the things that's going on in that movie. It's mm. – you know, it's it's a – I call the movie perverse because it, it's yeah. turned the wrong way. Yeah, but you, there's all you, sorts you of movies word, you,
0: that you, – yeah, yeah, I, I should tell the audience that you use words in a special way. In your books, you use Words like uh, uh, perverse" and "incoherent" as terms of praise, yeah. often that these are these are virtues of, of the films. Often you're talking about. yeah, it's, I think that's special, kind of special. Uh, you want to talk about about your um, kind of like the way you use the, you, your, the way you use abduction. In there, they're talking about the adoption of certain things. Uh, Oh,
1: yeah, that's not my word. (laughs) So
0: that's actually a term from philosophy. But,
1: yeah, yeah, incoherence. So I use incoherence in Hollywood, incoherence. I use incoherence. So I think of incoherence, well, a snowball is coherent, right? Right. Everything is sticking together. Something Mm -hmm. that's incoherent is things are... Not sticking together, right? See, they're they're yeah. kind of falling apart, like a drawer full of knickknacks, right? Is incoherent. So right. I don't mean it in the in the um, uh, sort of figurative sense of it doesn't make any sense. Although mm-hmm. sometimes that you can. You know that's that that's is how I use it, it. Uh-huh. but but I really need it in the literal sense of things aren't sticking together. Something's going over here and something's over You're here, over and you right. cannot
0: find a place to where they can exist in the same in the right. same structure. Um, and well, so some uh, some, of, some of us think that that's yeah. what our life is actually like. Yeah. In, the real, in the real world, yeah. but but anyhow, go ahead. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. That's probably- so so. Hollywood
1: incoherence is about how this this you know way of making right. movies. Uh, you know this incoherence within. Movies is was 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 strangely popular for a, for you know less than a decade, um, and then in in that book and also in uh, Hollywood Aesthetic, I use the term perverse to mean, So perverse literally means turn the wrong way. Perverse. So verse means turn, and 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 per is you know wrong way. So um, perverse, and and I think of that. As you know, it's related to incoherence in that there's something that is sort of sticking out, something that is not facing the right direction. So we tend to use the term perverse in the moral sense, which is right. somebody' morally perverse if they're like a child molester right. or something right. like that. But I don't mean it that way. I just mean that it, it something that can be in morality quite quite wrong and and mm-hmm. and um, you know antisocial, is in the artistic realm, a virtue, because yeah, right. we often come back to artworks. We find them interesting and challenging and and yeah. and uh, novel and and, and and unorthodox when they are somehow turned the wrong way. And I think Starship Troopers is a good example of a movie that's turned the wrong way. Yeah. It, it's, it seems to be heading in one direction, and then all of a sudden you find yourself someplace you'd never expect it to be.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you talk a lot about the finding the happy medium or balance between giving your brain something to do to figure something out yeah. um, and being bored by internal repetition. And I, I, it's interesting. Yeah. That, the thing. But you also say in this book, you make a claim about current audiences that their appetite for puzzles is much higher. And, and you seem to imply that they, they crave or want more uh, puzzle yeah, films than, than they Is this true? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm speculating
1: there. But I I, I, what I'm seeing is that there is an appetite for puzzle films at the narrative level. That's it. At the stylistic level, people are still pretty conservative. They want the familiar style, but meaning they want shot reverse shot. They want, you know, the camera to to, to frame the action in the center of the frame, you know, things like that. People aren't. You know, filmmakers in, at least working in the mainstream tradition, aren't really working with unusual styles. When Hollywood experiments, it's usually at the level of stories. That's right. It's telling unusual stories. But there seems to be an appetite in the 21st century, and it began in the, in the, you know, in the 40s, you could say, but it got really intense, you know, in the 90s and then beyond, um, for movies that are, are puzzles that, you just you you need to see them several times. Even a filmmaker like a mainstream filmmaker like Christopher Nolan is yeah. making movies that are real puzzle films yeah. that, that he wants you to to watch again and try to work on them and figure them out because they're not um, they're not so straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I think that that may be and I spe- I was I'm speculating there that may be a factor of people's just familiarity with classical storytelling. That they, they get bored with it because it's too straightforward and they yeah. say, show me something I haven't seen. Show me something that's going to make me work a little bit. I think one of the, you know, sort of, uh, you know, central beliefs in my, in all my aesthetic analysis is that people get bored. You know, you go to artworks to work. Mm-hmm. If you're not working, you're bored and you know we think of art as escapist and it is but it's escapism in a, of a particular sort where you're actually doing something with your brain you're not just couch potatoing right. you are thinking and if you're not mm-hmm. thinking not you 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 you're tuned out right. it's just background noise mm-hmm. but if you're engaged you're working mm-hmm. Uh, And I think people, you know, by all accounts, people are engaged by Hollywood movies. They're cheering. They're jumping out of their seats. They're standing in line. They're weeping. They're screaming. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're just sitting there watching passively. People love Hollywood movies, so they Mm -hmm. must be working. So my effort in that book is to say, well, what are you doing? What what work is the movie making you do?
0: Yeah, what is the work? What is, how does this work? What's your, what's your, what's your, um, so you're, 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 do you mind talking to the audience about analytic philosophy and, uh, and abduction? <laughs> you want to talk about getting with that guy using that? You... Are you sure you want to go there? Rich? <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's heavy stuff. It is, yeah.
1: So, um, all right. So, the concept of abduction, which is not stealing children in in, right. in philosophy, um, the concept of abduction comes from Charles Peirce. Uh, oh, I mean, I don't know if he originated it. I these, have read this. Just...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah. So he certainly, you know, um, investigated it. The the idea is that there are different types of reasoning. So the the two most common forms of reasoning are deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is what's called strict logic or crisp logic. That's you know two plus two equals four. There's no way for it not to be. You don't need to prove it Mm -hmm. by looking at examples. It is true according to deductive reasoning, which is crisp logic. Mm -hmm. Um, So logicians work and mathematicians work um, deductively. Mm -hmm. Scientists work inductively. Inductive reasoning is making observations and drawing conclusions. So a good scientist uses scrutiny. They, Mm -hmm. they, They observe the world or they set up an experiment. They make a prediction. They see what the results are. And then they um, induce a conclusion based on those results. Mm-hmm. and And it's 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 reliable. To a certain degree, but it's not perfectly reliable. Mm-hmm. Like deductive reasoning, deductive reasoning is perfect. Inductive reasoning is imperfect, which is why science is constantly improving. The cures, the the treatments for you know heart disease and cancer are getting better and better because induction is a process of scrutiny and observation, etc. Pierce talks about this other type of reasoning, which is abduction. Abduction is basically a guess you you're presented with information and you're like well maybe it's this and, and it can just sort of pop into your head or you might you know work at it for a while right. so if you're looking at an, an anagram for instance or you know like you might use abduction not That's right. you're not going to use deduction it's not going to work mm-hmm. you could use induction but it would take forever yeah but Abduction, you could just like glance at it and say, oh, this is fishmonger, <laughs> right? You know, like, yeah. but all the words are, like, you just sort of, it pops into your head and you take a guess and maybe you got some letters wrong. Maybe it isn't fishmonger. Maybe it's yeah. something like fishmonger, but you did your best and it was a moment of imagination, of insight, of inspiration, and you don't know when it's going to come, but you just kind of, it just hits you. Mm-hmm. Narratives require abduction. You're mostly just making guesses. Yeah. You're certainly you're observing, you're using scrutiny. You're not using deductive except, you know, rarely. Mm-hmm. But you're basically the filmmakers are cueing you to make guesses mm-hmm. all the time. And that process is enjoyable because it's imaginative, and your brain likes to engage in imaginative activity. And this is the work, this is the primary work, or maybe one of the primary, if not the primary work, of, of observing art, which is you, 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 something hits you, and you're coming to conclusions, and you're making guesses, and maybe they're not logical. Abduction is prone to error, mm-hmm. right? You, you, If you're using abductive reasoning, you're, you're you know, just as likely to be wrong mm-hmm. as right, but it is a type of reasoning, you May be wrong, but you did engage in that Reason. cognitive activity, and the, and artwork spur that activity, that's and that's
0: one of the reasons we enjoy them. We enjoy the very fact that it's not those other kinds of reasoning. That's yeah. right, because the stakes are low. Yeah, right? low stakes. That, if you're wrong, that. it doesn't I, I, matter. I sort of feel like doing banned Books Week, which is now right. I sort of feel like everybody should read your chapter about the low stakes. People, oh, people have yeah. art, people have an artificially high view of the stakes in art. They think it's Yeah, the mistake device.
1: They, they think it's but happening the stakes in the world. Are low.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that. It's think, not
1: like sending somebody to the moon. If you're wrong, <laughs> you know, if you use abductive reasoning to yeah. send somebody to the moon, you're gonna get in trouble. But you can use it when you're watching The Godfather and nobody's gonna
0: care. Right, right. That's that's the thing, the lower stakes. Um, I've really enjoyed discussing these things with you. There's a lot to – movies are popping into my head. How about showing them Girlfriends by Claudia Lau in your 70s class?
1: Oh, man. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Yeah, Girlfriend, that's a good idea. Yeah, I'm thinking – I might show Sorcerer, which is a William Friedkin Friedkin. movie that that, – it's not really remembered. It was based on a Clouseau mm-hmm. movie you've probably seen called Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good remake. Yes. Um, so that that's an option too. But yeah, or Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. You've mm-hmm. probably seen that, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah, the early Michael Camino movie before Deer Hunter, before Heaven's Gate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and he made a really good caper movie.
0: Yeah. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of Fat City. And Fat City. Yeah, Fat City is a lovely boxing movie. Um, There's a lot of movies. There's a lot of movies. Yeah, it's a brilliant period. Brilliant period. Is there anything else you want to say before we, because even good things like this come to an end, right? So what do you want to, uh, comes into your consciousness that you want to share with the audience? Um, Maybe a a word on the word aesthetic itself. What do people mean when they say aesthetic? What What is that?
1: Yeah, um, if if I could define it in a way that everybody would agree, I'd be a, 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 the most famous philosopher of aesthetics of all time. So, aesthetics is one of those contested terms. But but um, I think if 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 philosophers of aesthetics agree on anything, which they don't. they don't. It would yeah. be on this. It, it, first, it involves some sensory stimulation. It's right. not just thinking. You can't daydream and have an aesthetic experience. It has to be an object that you are perceiving. Wow. Okay. And two, it's not just sensory right? Because sensory pleasures are passive, right? Like eating ice cream, you don't have to think to enjoy it. But in artwork uh, or exactly. nature, if you're enjoying it aesthetically, there, there's some thought engaged.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But
1: that's not enough either. There has to be a third thing. And this is where the philosophers get really, you know, where the controversies erupt, which is appreciation or some mm-hmm. p- people call it sensitivity or right. taste or or discrimination <laughs> or evaluation right. you know it's that third thing that people can agree on when it comes to what is aesthetics but there but 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 really you know I think we could say if aesthetics is anything, there are also philosophers who don't think it's anything. They think it's it's, a, it's an incoherent concept. But I think when we're talking <laughs> about aesthetics, we're talking yeah. about some work of art, uh, some work of art or nature, or some object that you're that you're appreciating that gives you sensory pleasure, but also gives you intellectual pleasure. But there's also this meta quality where you're like you say to yourself, mm, "That was good," you know, "I really like that." Uh, where you think of it as a work of art.
0: I see. Well, I, I recently, I was fortunate to have uh, Blake, uh, the, the man who wrote the Warhol biography, the big War, Blake Gottnick, on the show. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Well, it was an interesting conversation because he subscribes very much to this um, very abstract view of aesthetics, of Noé's view that, um, that it's, it's a meta he really does think art is about art, I think. I think he, he I don't want to speak for him, but He was very much of the the last thing you said that you're being aware of something as a work of art is for him, I think, indispensable. Mm -hmm. And I don't don't know how I feel about that. I'm on the fence. That's a more that's a very um, because it's a strong claim to me. I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but
1: that's well. There's there are aesthetic philosophers who who you know would agree with him, and um, you know, in, you know the the other area that aesthetics operates in, though the primary area is nature. Mm. So, and but but there are some aesthetic philosophers that say when you when you appreciate art aesthetically, you're treating nature as though it's a work of art. Interesting. Yeah. And so, so some people think that aesthetics is the domain of art. At the very least, mm-hmm. there are many who would say that when it comes to aesthetic experience, art is really good at giving it. That that's the yeah. only thing that art consistently g- gives us. And that if it doesn't give us that, we don't even consider it you know, worthy of anything. It could be so Socially valuable, economically valuable, sexually valuable—whatever. None of those things tell us that it's a, you know, that it's a good artwork. The only thing, again, according to some philosophers like Don Lopez, right. um, would say, you know, it, that if there is any artistic value, it is only aesthetic value.
0: Interesting. Well, that's a view that uh, you're not going to say. Will you weigh in on on any of that, or you know? How do you, how do you
1: yeah, evolve? you know, I I I'm out of my league. I'm already out of my league. Okay. Just defining aesthetics. This is, you know, there there are many minds since Aristotle yeah. that have tried to
0: do this, right. and 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 bigger I, philosophical I do, minds have failed. Did, I, of course, didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I I you feel I felt you were up to it, and you were you. you that was very very helpful.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I did the best I could, but you know, I'm 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 really um, you know, an amateur there. I, I as I say in in, in Hollywood aesthetic, I, I think a pluralistic approach. I'm not gonna try to settle these controversies yeah. in aesthetic because, you know, I'm totally unqualified to do that. But I do know that I that, that a lot of these aesthetic philosophers can help us understand how artworks work and so i want to make sure to use them in this pluralistic way Mm -hmm. so that i don't ignore all that learning
0: well you teach at unc and you're going to be teaching on tuesday and i i'm excited that you're doing that and I hope you have a good class, and I hope you have a good semester. Well, thank you
1: so much. I, UNC Wilmington,
0: not UNC Temple Hill. I teach at UNC Wilmington, Wilmington. So just so your listeners know that. Very important. And, and uh, thanks for being on our show. And uh, if you have any, oh, thank uh, you so anything, much. anything else you fun. want to add, now is the time.
1: Anything no, I you? think we're good. I think we did, we did about we, – we tested the,
0: the patience of, of, of the your listeners. listeners. <laughs> I think we did. Thank you very much, Tom. All right. Thank you. And take care. bye I don't like goodbyes so I'll see you soon folks thank you